0: Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, good morning, Mercy family. Man, what a joy it is to be with you guys. I've been out for the last couple weeks on vacation, and while that was awesome, there's nothing like being in your church home on Sunday morning to worship with your brothers and sisters and family. Um, So it's my joy to be with you, to be able to share God's word with you guys this morning. First off, I want to have a shout out to any sixth graders in the room. Today is Mercy Kids Promotion Sunday, and we're welcoming sixth graders for the first time. So we're so glad that you're in here. Uh, Mercy Families is such an exciting ministry in our church, and it's such a cool opportunity for the full spectrum of God's people to come around families and partner with them to raise up disciples, the future church uh, sits in, uh, in in the kids around us, and so um, it's it's a joy to have you. I hope that you enjoy our time together today. Speaking of family, so one of my fondest memories growing up with my family was actually Friday pizza and movie night. Here's what we would do: every single Friday, we'd go down to the family video because our town wasn't bougie; we didn't have Blockbuster. And we'd pick out a VHS or a DVD if we were feeling extra fancy, and we'd grab a couple pizzas at our favorite parlor and head back to the house and snuggle up together and enjoy a good time. Now, I don't know if you like movies or not, but when I met my wife, Meredith, I was really excited to find out pretty early on that she shared a common love for movies with me. And here's the thing about movies. Some movies are just, they're just meant for the big screen. You know what I'm saying? Like, for me, in any movie that's an action-packed movie, a Marvel-type movie, or something super exciting and in your face, I want to see it on the big screen. There's just not the same as watching a movie in your house. And my wife shares this love for the big screen, but the thing that my wife likes more than the movie itself is the trailers to the movie. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Or any of you guys like this? Like... We get to the movie theater 15 minutes before the movie's even scheduled to start, which is a strong contrast to the rest of our life. (laughs) But we always make it for the trailers, because we don't want to miss the movie trailers. And here's the thing with movies. These trailers over the years, they've come a long ways. I mean, you've got... People investing tons and tons of money into movies to make these trailers awesome. And my wife and I, Meredith, we, watched, we were watching this uh, trailer the other day for this movie called The Beast. Have you heard of this movie yet? No. So that's okay. You'll probably see it at some point. But here's the plot, all right? I'm not going to give away the movie. Here's the, pro, here's the plot. Actor Idris Elba plays a father with two daughters, okay? So they embark on a tour in some game land in South Africa and as they're embarking in this beautiful land they come across this lion this lion crossed and this lion seems to be hunting them now as you can imagine from the name of the movie the beast is the lion and this lion is a beast so after we watch this trailer Meredith kind of leans over and she goes well feel like I just saw that movie. <laughs> you know that feeling when you watch a trailer and it seems to give away the entire story? Now, I wasn't a film major in college, but I think the idea of a trailer is pretty simple. I think that a trailer, if it's good at doing its job, is supposed to create hype and excitement for the upcoming release of the full-length movie. The producers are giving you just enough of the story to get you hooked. If they give you too much, you might lose interest, And feel like you've already seen the movie. If they don't give you enough, then you might pick something different for your Friday pizza and entertainment. So our passage today, where we're picking up in John, isn't much different than a movie trailer. We're going to be picking up back in chapter 1. We're going to be covering verses 14 through 18. Now, you may remember that the first 18 verses of the book of John serve as a prologue to the whole book. So a trailer of sorts. The author John inserts just enough content to hook us. He's, introdu- he's introducing all of the stories that are about to follow. This prologue, though, is strategically placed, it's powerfully composed, and it's richly themed. As a matter of fact, several key themes surface in the first 18 verses of the book of John. Themes like light, life, witness, truth, glory, glory, there's many things that are introduced in these first 18 verses, but, but the major and likely most significant theme in these first 18 verses is the depiction of how the Son of God, the Messiah, the Word, God himself, comes into the story of history. The creator and author of this entire world enters into the context of what has happened up to this point, transforming forevermore what will happen in the story of God's love story of reconciliation and redemption. It really is a beautiful passage with truths deep enough to literally change your life. And that is my hope for this sermon. That is our hope as a church for this series. This is why we have entitled the series, For God So Loved. For God so loved, because we want you to experience, whether afresh or for the first time, the deep love that God has for you. And we hope that this experience will change your life. Here at Mercy, we expect God to change a life today. And I expect God to show up in the next however many minutes to change my life and to change your life. Let me tell you where we're going for the next little bit. I have entitled today's sermon, Seeing and Receiving is Believing. And here's my desire. First, I want to walk through the passage and make a few observations along the way, because this text is beautiful. And I think God has some work to do in you and me in these pages. Second, I want to show you that the only way to see God is to receive grace And the only way to receive grace is to believe that Jesus is God. So with that in mind, let's pray and let's ask God together to meet us. Oh God, who looks down from heaven for those that fear you. We approach this text with fear and hope, reverence and anticipation. Lord, we want more love, which is to say we want more of you. Would you meet us in this space, O Spirit of the living God? We want to see you, Jesus. Show us what you're like. Amen. All right, let's get into the text. Picking up, chapter 1, verse 14. Word should be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. All right, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed... His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Wow, just this verse has so much in it. So let's break it down sentence by sentence. First, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now we learned a couple weeks ago that when the author John refers to the Word, he's referring to Jesus. Even though Jesus' specific name hasn't been mentioned at this point, in the text, we know from the greater context that John is talking about Jesus. And John's already told us that the Word was with God, that the Word was God. So John is saying that God became flesh. God became human. This simple sentence is describing the wonderful and deep doctrine of the Incarnation. God Incorporated in flesh. Now, we as a church, we celebrate the incarnation every single year at Christmas, remembering the coming of God into the story to change and transform forevermore the world through the person and the work of Jesus. Now, church, do not miss this. God became human flesh. This single truth changes everything about our faith. And don't be mistaken, God didn't set aside a portion of his godness or his humanness. No, he didn't become like half God, half human, like a tale of a Greek demigod. He was fully God and fully manned. This is miraculous. It is wonderful. And sometimes, I think in church, we hear this so much, we sing this so much that we miss the significance of this simple truth. So you're going to hear me today slow down a few different times and focus in on this truth. I am doing that because this is so important. And slowing down helps us to feel that. The text continues, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now the word that John, the author, uses here for dwelt could be translated as to make a dwelling or to make a tent. I love Eugene Peterson's translation in the message. He uses the expression, he, referring to Jesus, he moved into the neighborhood. The original audience reading John's letter would have heard this word dwell, and they would have heard tabernacled. That's not really a word that we use here, but it's a callback to the Old Testament tabernacle from Exodus chapter 26. So what was the tabernacle? Well, in short, God made the whole world, and he walked freely with people in the Garden of Eden. And after people sinned, God didn't dwell with people like that any longer. Instead, God set aside a people for himself, the Israelites, and he commanded this people to build this beautiful tent mimicking God's heavenly temple. This was the tabernacle. It was understood that God met his people in this tent. God's presence was in this tent. God's priests would speak to God in this place. God's prophets would hear from God in this place. God's people would worship God in this place. This is what the tabernacle was. So when John wrote that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, his readers who were mostly Jewish or at least familiar with their stories and history would likely have been overwhelmed by the profundity of God taking on flesh as his grandest gesture of love toward people. He literally moved into the neighborhood. Church, we can't miss this. God made this move towards us. This is part of why the incarnation is so significant. It's God who bridged the gap that you and I created. Imagine just for a minute, what would it be like to have God move into your neighborhood, into your apartment complex? Yeah, wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, talk about the best neighbor ever. Like, hey, invite me over for dinner. I want to come over. You are awesome. This idea of God moving into our neighborhood is insane. Just as it was life transforming for John's audience, it should be life transforming for us today. Jesus moving toward us like this should transform the way that we we think, the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we worship. Everything that we do should be transformed by this simple truth. Everything that mercy has done, will do, or ever wants to do is contingent on this single truth. We must take our cue as Jesus' people from him. He moved towards those that were sinful and broken. And we we must move to the lost around us. We can't just run away from lost people. Instead, why don't we take our cue from our leader and do as he has done? Now, if this information is new to you, or you're sitting here and you're just not feeling anything at all stirring in your soul at the thought of this truth, then please stick around, Mercy. Read the book of John. Pick up one of these journals. Pick up a Bible. Read the book of John. And when you finish John, keep going. Read the rest of the New Testament to learn about God moving even closer than human flesh, even closer than the neighborhood, I dare you. The text continues, verse 14. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, remember a few weeks back when we had our overview of the book of John. John is writing an account of Jesus' life that he witnessed. But he's writing this many years after Jesus has already left this earth. And after all of the other accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke... Have been written. So as he looks back on all that Jesus did, who he had seen himself, Jesus, to be, he writes these words We observed, or we've seen, his glory, God's glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is doubling down on the significance of God becoming flesh. To most of his original audience, when he said God's glory has been seen or observed, there would have been an immediate connection to the stories of old, the stories that we would call the Old Testament. Now, we should read this passage the way they would have read it. And they would have understood glory to represent the image, the power, the revealed character, the very presence of God. Remember that tabernacle that we talked about a little bit ago? Well, that tabernacle was understood to regularly be filled with the glory of God, even to the point that it was visible as a cloud descended on the tent. The glory of God was considered especially significant to God's people. So John, recounting in retrospect that we have seen, we have seen His glory is another way of saying, we have seen God. In Jesus, we've seen God. And John continues, he says that he, referring to Jesus, was full of grace and truth. Here we have another callback to the Old Testament, understanding of who God was, what his character was like. We'll unpack that in just a minute, but for now, let's keep going. Here's what we need to know from verse 14. Jesus is God in the flesh, dwelling with people. And when we look at Jesus, we see God's glory. We see God himself. Let's continue. Verse 15, John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Now you might be a little confused here with who this John is. So here's what's going on. The author... John A., John the Apostle, is talking about John B., John the Baptist, not John B. from Outer Banks, if you watch that show. <laughs> John A. is telling us that even John B. testified to Jesus being God. He's saying that Jesus, even though he was younger than John B. in age, was in fact in existence before John B. Next week we're going to pick back up the first story of this book and we'll get to see John B. and Jesus interact more. So come come back next week to check that out. But we'll be done with our prologue and we'll be getting into the stories of Jesus and his ministry here on earth. But the reason I think John puts this little parenthetical reference in here is to show us yet again that Jesus is God. Are you picking up on this theme This theme is foundational to everything that John is about to write down. Every single story that follows, John 1, verse 18, pivots on this key truth that Jesus is God. And more, it's foundational to everything that we believe today. Jesus is the point of the whole story. Everything in the word points to Jesus. And if Jesus isn't God then none of the story even matters. What are we even doing here? Let's continue in verse 16. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So now John is shifting into talking about what we've received in the person of Jesus. First, he hit on what we have seen or observed. See that in verse 14. Now he's hitting on what we have received. And church, in the person of Jesus, we have received so much. I have received so much. And that's exactly John's point here. When he talks of receiving grace upon grace from the fullness of Jesus, he's saying that we have received infinite grace. Grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace. John's going to riff off of this idea of unending blessing found in Jesus later in his book. In chapter 4, Jesus is going to tell a woman who's looking for water that he gives living water that permanently quenches thirst. A picture of the Spirit of God to bring forever life. In chapter 6, after taking five simple loaves of bread and turning it into enough bread to feed more than 5,000 people with leftovers, Jesus tells the people that he is the bread of life. And he is the bread from heaven that gives life to the world and forever removes hunger. Another picture of Jesus being the source of life. Eternal life. Have you ever heard someone make the joke about gracing you with their presence. I've heard this used mostly as a passive-aggressive way to call out someone who's typically a little more full of themselves than is tolerable. They show up at a party and someone drops it like, hey, Jake, so nice of you to grace us with your presence. Or maybe you've heard it when somebody shows up late to an important meeting. Yet again, passive-aggressive, but it gets the point across. Well, I think that what we have going on here is similar to that. Here's the thing that's beautiful about verse 15. John is saying that all have received grace upon grace from the fullness of Jesus. But not all receive Jesus. But all have received grace upon grace in the fullness of Jesus. God has truly graced us with his presence and this is such incredible news. In the person of Jesus, God has graced us with his presence. All of us, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you believe, you have been graced with the presence of God. So in quick summary, around the... Oh, sorry, I missed something here. The text continues in verse 17. If you notice, he starts to talk about the law. Okay, so what, why is he making this comparison between Jesus and the law? So here's the summary. Around the same time, that God gave the Israelites instructions on how to build that tabernacle he also gave he also gave them what is known as the law or God's spoken commandments that would imprint his nature on his people when they followed them so if they obeyed his law blessings followed if they disobeyed his law problems ensued and we learn from other scriptures that Jesus came to fulfill or to complete the law. So what John is saying here is that the law was given, not as a curse or something bad, but as a gift. Look at the word usage here in verse 17. The law was given. Do you see that? Implying something good. Because you see, God's law was and is good for his people. It reveals our need for a savior by displaying our inability to be holy and perfect like him. And this is John's way of showing his readers that God has given through Moses a great gift, grace. The law is grace to God's people, but John doesn't stop with the law and its benefits. No, he continues. He goes on to say that grace and truth came through Jesus. The law was given, but grace and truth came. Remember earlier when we read in verse 14 about Jesus being full of grace and truth? Well, now John's saying that grace and truth came through Jesus. So what is the significance about these two words that John would use them twice within just a few verses to describe Jesus? Well, back when this law that we were just talking about was referenced, there was a conversation between Moses, the prophet, and God himself. And God speaks to Moses and describes himself. So anytime in the scriptures that God describes himself, we should probably listen. So let's take a look at Exodus 34, verse 6. These are the words of God himself speaking to Moses, speaking to you. To me. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth. Abounding in faithful love and truth. These two words, translated in other places as steadfast love and faithfulness, become staple terms to describe the character of God throughout many generations. The Old Testament is laced with these words, and any Jewish child would have learned from an early age that these terms, steadfast love and faithfulness, described the God of Israel, Yahweh, their Lord. So John isn't just saying that Jesus has these characters or has these qualities. No, he is saying that steadfast love and faithfulness personified, came. They came through Jesus. The law was given, but grace and truth came. This is personalized language. Came implies intent. Think of it like this. Imagine your hero or somebody that's very powerful and important. Think of that person for a second. Now, imagine that they send you a personal gift for your birthday. Like, LeBron James sends you a birthday gift that he picked out for you. Or maybe it's Queen Elizabeth II. You don't know who LeBron is. (laughs) Queen Elizabeth sends you a note with a personal gift just because. (laughs) That would be pretty incredible, right? Like, think about it. That gift from that person who really has no business giving you or me anything like this is like the law. God, given from a perfect God, God gives us grace in the law. But imagine this. Imagine that LeBron shows up at your doorstep and he wants to hang out with you. He wants to grab dinner. Yeah, whoa. The queen shows up to your workplace and as the buzz is making its way around the office, you hear her voice calling your name and inviting you to lunch. Now, the gift was pretty epic, but the personal presence of the gift giver, that's next level. And this is what John is saying is happening. The law was given through Moses, but by God as a gift to his people, but grace and truth came walked through the door moved into the neighborhood stepped into your presence do you want to know the character of God and what he's like we just saw in Exodus 34 that he's compassionate he's gracious he's he's not quick to judge or quick to become angry. No, he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, faithful love, unending love, and truth and faithfulness. This is the character of God. And John is saying that grace and truth, steadfast love and faithfulness came through Jesus. He came to us, Mercy Church. He came to you and to me. Oh, what glory, what joy that God would come to us bringing life. Yeah. Not, not condemnation for our sins, not punishment for our many, many wrongs, not death that we deserve, but life eternal. Oh, how we have received in Jesus grace upon grace upon grace. Hallelujah. This is such good news for us, church. He has come. God himself has come. And we have done nothing more than receive. Let's keep going. Let's look at verse 18. John says, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Now, John's doing something here that is similar to what he did back in verse 1, if you remember. You remember he said that the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Well, he's doing it again here with this personal picture of the one and only Son, who is himself God, but is also right next to God the Father, He's wrapping up his beautiful prologue with a bit of a poetic statement. He says, no one has ever seen God. But he's already established that Jesus is God and that we have seen God's glory in Jesus. So no one has ever seen God until Jesus. Because Jesus is God. So when John, or any of his friends, looked at Jesus, they saw God. No one had ever seen God up to this point. Moses caught a glimpse, and it was so powerful that he had to cover his face because it was shining for so many days afterwards. But the disciples, the people that Jesus interacts with in these pages, they saw God. And church, we have seen God. If you want to see God, look to Jesus. Now, we learned a few weeks ago something really key about the book of John. The book of John, unlike most books in the Bible, gives us its intended purpose. So we must pay attention to this purpose. Look with me at John twenty thirty-one. Right before John, the author, concludes his, with his epilogue, he shares this. But these are written, looking back on everything that he's written up to this point, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wrote down every story that he wrote, recounted every specific detail so that the readers may believe and so that their belief would bring life forever life. Such a beautiful purpose to write something that is so precious, so sacred, so wonderful that it's still transforming lives today. And what a gift of God that we have this. We have it on the screen, in your hand, printed out. We have these words from John promising life and life eternal. Let me, let me ask you a question, friend. Do you want to see God? Do you want to see His glory, His nature? Do you want to receive grace upon grace upon grace, steadfast love and faithfulness? Do you? I said earlier that I wanted to show you that the only way to see God is to receive grace. And the only way to receive grace is to believe that Jesus is God. This is my only sermon point because I want it to sink in. Let me ask you this. Look up here for a second. Why are you here today? Why are you in church? Is it an obligation? I mean, maybe you feel like you have to be here. Do your circumstances make it seem impossible to not be in church today? Maybe your parents are making you be here. Maybe you work here. You might be here today, and you might feel a sense of obligation to be in church. Or maybe it's just a habit, a duty. This is what you do on Sunday. It's how you were raised. I think of my upbringing. We are the Greers, and on Sunday, the Greers go to church. Is that you? Maybe you're here today and guilt is your motivation. You've done some bad things in your life, maybe this week, and being at church on Sunday morning makes your guilt subside just a little bit. Are you sitting here right now having difficulty listening because you keep thinking about how much you did just this week that you're ashamed of and you wouldn't want anyone in this room to know about it? Maybe you're here today because it's fun. You like the music, the energy, the passion. You enjoy the break from your kids. Your favorite restaurant is over by the church, and your favorite people go there with you on Sundays. You enjoy social interaction. You used to like the preaching. (laughs) Is this you? Are you here to be entertained? Or how about this one? This one is particularly sneaky. Maybe you're here today because it's what good people do. And after all, you think that you're a good person. Is being in church this morning with your Bible and your notepad ready, dressed in your Sunday best, your way of earning your ticket to heaven? Do you think that being good enough will get you there? After all, receiving grace makes you uncomfortable. You'd rather earn than receive. I mean, that's what we want, right? We feel good when we earn something. An award, a break, a paycheck, a bonus, a spouse, a cheat meal, a good performance review. Because that's how it works. We perform and then we are rewarded for our performance. We like that exchange. It feels fair. So being in church, opening your Bible, it's just part of the earning, the performance. You know, though, some of you, some of you are here because you are expectant. You brought your Bible and your journal because you love God's word, and you want to learn more about it. Yeah, you made mistakes this week, but you come in here knowing that you're forgiven. And you want to sing your favorite songs with your favorite people, celebrating the God who extended grace upon grace to you just this week. You're not here to earn, but to receive. And you keep coming back. Not because this church is special, and not because it's just a habit, but because Jesus loves his church and you love yours. Maybe you're in here today because this is your last resort. You're desperate. You've been doing this life on your own for far too long, and the church felt like a place where you could find a new way forward. Maybe you want healing. Maybe you're looking for forgiveness. You want renewal. You're in search of life. Well, listen, my friends, Let me tell you this. I don't care why you're here. I'm not bothered by your motivation. I don't judge you. I've been in church before because of obligation. I've been swept up in the duty and habit of spiritual things and lost the grip on the sacred nature of this place. I've tried to drown my guilt by listening to worship or acting in front of my Christian friends like everything's okay. Okay. I've sought to be entertained by spiritual things and found myself disappointed when a church service was less than awesome. And man, oh man, oh man, have I tried through religious activity to earn God's favor over and over and over for my whole life. But the more I look at Jesus, my God, and see his glory, the more I come into this place expectant and desperate, I expect God to meet me here, and I'm regularly desperate for that meeting. Listen, I don't know why you're here, but I'm glad. I'm glad that you're here. You know why? Because God is in this room. Well, he's not just in this room. He is here. And I'm glad you're here because the verses on the screen, the verses in your your booklets, in your Bible, they hold power. Real life transforming power. I'm glad that you're here because this is a place of worship. This is a place of forgiveness, of healing. This is a place of grace. I'm glad you're here because I love you. And this church loves you. And we believe that God can change your life today. And here's my hunch about you. You do want to see God You do want to receive grace, truth, steadfast love, faithfulness. I mean, who wouldn't really want that? The only way to see God is to receive grace, and the only way to receive grace is to believe that Jesus is God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is God? Now, for lots of us in this room, when we hear that question, we instantly answer with, yes, I I do believe that. We have received Jesus, and we see him and treat him as our Lord and Savior. If that's you today, I want to challenge you to worship him like he is God. Not just during this next song, but when you leave this place. If Jesus is God and you actually believe that, then it should change everything about your life. And your life should be characterized by praise. Because what else do people do in the presence of God but bow down and worship? Second, I want you to love others like he's God. Jesus gave two simple commands while he was here. Love God and love others. So that's my second challenge to you. Where do you need to love God more in your life right now? Where do you need to love others more? You know, wherever it is, whatever he's asking you to do, it's worth it. Now, as the band comes up, I want to speak for a minute in conclusion to anyone in the room who, when they saw this question, do you believe that Jesus is God? He answered no. If you don't believe and you're not ready to, that's okay. I'm glad that you're here. Here's my challenge for you should you choose to accept. Two things. First, stick around. Stick around for this series. Second, read the book of John. See if John, the author's purpose, comes true for you. See if in the end, you end up believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That God himself is Jesus himself. Because here's what I know. If you come to believe that, you will find life in his name. I'm praying for you. We're praying for you. Lastly, I want to address the final group in the room. When you hear me say, do you believe that Jesus is God? You answer, no, but I think I'm ready. And if that's you, here's my challenge for you. During the next worship song, we're going to be baptizing people right down here. If that's you, God's tugging on your heart. You might be ready to put your faith in Jesus for the first time. I want you to stand up during the next song. Everyone's going to be standing. Make your way to the end of the aisle and go to the back of the room. Someone will be back there to pray with you. I know this is a big step. And I know that it probably makes you nervous enough to throw up right now. But let me tell you, friend, there's no greater thing than receiving life. There's no better gift than the son of God and there's no other God, no other source of life that can offer what the God of this Bible can offer you. Jesus came fully God, fully man. He left his throne to take on human flesh like us. He looked like us. He lived on this earth and experienced life like you and I do, with highs and lows, sorrow and pain, laughter and joy. But he, unlike me and unlike you, he he never sinned, not once. In the pages of this book, in the stories that follow this prologue, you will see what he's like. He looks at the unnoticed. He offers sight to the blind. He calls the unchosen. He speaks to the outcast. He heals the sick. He touches the people who are disgusting to everyone else. He feeds the hungry. He stands up to evil men and stands up for the oppressed. He serves his friends. He blesses the poor. He mourns with those that are hurting. He forgives his betrayers. He takes on the punishment that you and I deserve. And he dies for all of the sins, for all of the people, for all of time. He rises from the dead and defeats death forevermore. And he is coming back for his people he is God he's changed my life he has saved healed, restored, renewed corrected, developed befriended and sustained me most of my life centers around him and it is all worth it Jesus is everything to me and I want him we want him so badly to be everything to you So if you're ready today to put your faith in him for the first time, you're ready to believe by receiving this God that you now see clearly, then head to the back of the room during the next song and pray with someone. We are waiting for you. We would love nothing more than to welcome you. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for this word. Would you move in us Would you move in us? Would you stir affection in our hearts, Lord? If we have been dormant in our faith and affection for you, Lord, awaken us. Lord, if someone is in this room or people are in this room and they need to pray to receive you for the first time, Lord, I pray that they would have the courage to come to the back. Lord, I pray that you would change lives today through this church. In your name we pray, amen.